I'm going to tell you a little story about something that happened recently. Um, I was talking with Tucker. We try to share the gospel with our children relatively um, often. And we were, I was talking with Tucker and talking about the gospel and asking him what he believes. And oh, he says, oh, I'm, I'm already saved. I'm like, oh, well, that's great. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And he said, well, yeah, I don't remember when exactly it was, but it was while we lived here. Um, and I, I prayed and asked God to save me. And I said, oh, well, how do you know that, you're, that God has saved you? And he said, well, Dad, the Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And I believe it. So why shouldn't I believe that I'm saved? <laughs> You know, God, you know, and that's, that's just representative of how Jesus said, let the children come to me. And in fact, the kingdom of God is reserved for people who come to me as a child. God said it. I believe it. It's true. Why should I not believe it? Is God unreliable? Does God tell us untruths? Does God just try to make us feel bad sometimes? And we can pick and choose what we want to think. And just use the Bible as a reference guide. You know, kind of like the, a, map, a map. You open up a map, and it doesn't tell you where to go. It just tells you if you want to go somewhere, here's kind of how you can get there. But the Bible tells us what is true. It's not just a map that we get to pick and choose what we think is true. And where we want to go in life. And we get to kind of choose our own ending um, and our own path, like we do with a map. And there are many things that, in life, the Bible does not specifically address to the detail. And the topic today that we're going to be talking about, we, get, or we are given instruction. We are not given instruction as far as how to deal with every situation that falls under this category. And I'll be honest with you, last week it was, a, it was a difficult message. It was probably more difficult to hear than it was for me to preach. In fact, I didn't really have too hard of a time preaching it at all. If you remember, if you were here last week, we talked about lust and adultery. It's a hard topic to talk about. And if you'd like to, to hear it, you can go to the website. Um, it's on there, uh, if you weren't able to be here last week. But this, this week is different. This week, I, have a, I had a hard time going through this passage and studying to be able to present to you the guidance from the Lord. Because this is a very hard topic. This is a very sensitive topic. Where today we're going to be talking about divorce. We're going through Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And this week we're getting to Verses 31 and verse 32 in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And I want you to know that this is not easy for me as a pastor to come up here and tell you this is what this is the way it is. I know most of you sitting before me, if not all of you, are have either been divorced or ha- are very close to somebody who has been divorced. This is a sensitive topic. This is hard. This has been the source of much bitterness and pain in many of our lives. And I don't come to this subject lightly. 
I come to it with compassion because I know the type of suffering that a bad marriage can bring. A marriage where there is much sin and many of us have been ravished by a spouse who wanted nothing to do with the ways of the Lord and ended up wanting nothing to do with us. Many of us have been there. And it was painful, and it is painful. And throughout the course of this message, perhaps memories will be stirred. Memories that you don't want to think about. And that's not my purpose. My purpose is not to harm. My purpose is to help. My purpose is to teach the Word of God so that you can see the Word of God and know what the the heart of the Lord is and how to navigate these treacherous waters. Because He has given us instruction. But like I said, He doesn't deal with every situation that mankind can be faced with. But there is much that we can and should learn. And the reason I I started this message by presenting you this testimony of Tucker is we must have a humble heart when we approach Scripture. We must be humble. There are things when we go to Scripture, we will learn. I did that wrong. But I repent and I'm moving forward. We are not meant, and I do not want you to be stuck in perhaps a sin of the past. If that's in the past, then it's in the past. We must move on. But we must be humble. Humble enough to submit ourselves to what the Scriptures actually say. Because He does guide us. He does show us the way. And we must be the the kind of person who will not put our way first and just ask God to agree with us. But rather we look at what God's Word says and we submit to Him. And I want you to know that I have done the best I can to come at this, not in my own name, not according to my own opinions, but strictly looking at Scripture and what does Scripture have to say. So let us humbly, as we, as we dive into this very sensitive topic, to humble ourselves before God Himself who has given us this written Word. Let us not be uplifted against Him. But first let us pray and seek the Lord's guidance in, the, in a humble spirit. Lord, I, I pray for Your guidance here in the midst of all these people, that you will not just guide me in the words that I speak, but Lord, as we are looking at your scriptures, that you will speak to us in our spirit, by the Spirit, from your heart yourself, so that we might come into agreement with you, that we might be free in our hearts to, perhaps if necessary, repent of something in the past, Receive your free forgiveness and move forward in freedom from guilt and shame to forgive those who have harmed us in the past, however hard and difficult that might be, for you have forgiven us a great deal more than anybody has ever needed forgiveness from us. To rest in the freedom of not holding bitterness and resentment towards another person, particularly a a spouse that has divorced us, and to move forward in the freedom of joy that comes with forgiveness.
Help us, Lord, to be humble before your word because you do not give us your word to make our lives miserable. You give us the word to free us, to redeem us from past slavery, to set us forth in an abundant life, to push us forward. This is your will for us that we might lay hold on eternal life. You are not cruel to us. Your thoughts toward us are great and wonderful, filled with good, filled with love. And we have been able to benefit from those thoughts and your divine providence in our lives many times. We know, Lord, that you are not against us. I just pray that as we look through this, that a spirit of Satan would not rise up whispering in our ear, God is against you. God doesn't want you to be happy. God doesn't want what's best for you. For you have shown us time and time and time again and will continue to show us that your will for us is good. You are not against us. Your hand is not heavy upon us so that we might be crushed, but so that we might flourish. I pray that we would see that in all of this. And forgive my bumbling words if if any of these words that come out of my mouth that do not represent your heart. Lord, I pray that the people here would see it in your spirit to see the truth because it is not my will that I try to press, but your will. And I pray that you guide us in the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us look here at Matthew chapter 5. In verse 31 and 32, Jesus says, Furthermore, it has been said. Again, he's in the middle of providing some practical situations where the people have been taught wrongly by the religious leaders, by different sources in their culture, or maybe not taught wrongly, but he is filling the gaps. You know, the people were not taught wrongly when he says, you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not kill. They weren't taught wrong. That's true. But he takes them further into the intent of the law. And here in verse 31, we come into a situation where the people have been taught something, and they're in that society, it has been taught wrongly. And he says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. And he leaves it at that. He stops. That's all that Matthew puts in the Sermon on the Mount about Jesus' teaching about divorce. Now Jesus has more to say about divorce, and we'll look at, look at that. Matthew 19, we'll look there, we'll look over in Mark. But here in Matthew 5, this is all his two verses. He doesn't deal with any other um, topic in this sermon as briefly as this one. Whereas this one, in our minds, deserves probably a much de- more detailed discourse. In fact, volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes have been written about navigating divorce. 
perhaps many of us have read several of those volumes. But Jesus, here, two verses. We're going to walk through this a little bit. We're going to start at the roots. The word for divorce here is the word apolio, which is the root word for apostasy. Now, this is not not trying to make an unfair connection in your brain. It's the root word that simply means a falling away. The dissolving of a marriage. That's what this is referring to. And when he says certificate of a divorce, it's the same, it's the same root. The falling away. Whereas the word for divorce, the way it's constructed, is more of a sending away. Whereas the certificate of divorce is just the falling away. And these words are used professionally in Jesus' day, just like divorce is in our day. You know, it's a legal term, but it's also a general term. You know, we can divorce ourselves from a toxic friendship in a non-legal sense. We can divorce ourselves from a job that we don't like or any situation that we want to separate from. And in in Jesus' day, it was similar. It was used both legally and informally. You know, like I said, the word is also used to describe somebody falling away from the faith. That was also eventually turned into a proper term, apostasy. They are an apostate. Um, Just like divorce turned into a legal term. And we have to remember as we read this passage that Jesus is in the middle of tightening up some teachings that were let loose over the decades and centuries. He was addressing elements of the Old Testament law that were brief, lacking in elaboration, which gave way to the teachers of the law to interpret these laws as loosely as they saw fit. Straying away from the implications that may be too restrictive. And let me read the, the passage where this comes from in um, Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you'd like to look there, you can see the certificate of divorce discussion that Moses gave to the people. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Verses 1 through 4. And Deuteronomy was written, this is Deuteronomy means the second rendering of the law, which means there was a first one that was given in Exodus throughout Leviticus. Um, And Deuteronomy is kind of a, a recap of the law. But this discussion about divorce is only here in Deuteronomy in the second rendering. Perhaps, I don't know why, but perhaps because things came up. So you need to include some things that perhaps weren't included before. God gave the law to Moses on the mount, and it was perfect. But here, as he's rendering the law again, he's including another part. Perhaps simply, like I said, because Moses was not just the leader of the people, but he also stood as a judge for the people. He was the one, he and those whom he delegated, they brought him their issues. The people brought him their problems, and wished for Moses to judge on those problems. So perhaps over the years, as these people are wandering through the wilderness, he saw this coming up over and over and over again. So he says, he doubtless with a uh, meeting with God, God, what am I supposed to do about this? These husbands are leaving, are wanting to leave their wives. They're 
They're living treacherously with their wives because they hate them. They despise their wives. And it's causing all sorts of problems throughout the land. Perhaps that's the conversation Moses had with God. So God allowed him to include this in the law. And let's read it. He says, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And that is what the law has to say about divorce. It doesn't deal with all the situations that have come up in relationships, past and present, or the future. That's the law about divorce. And it was pretty general. Like I said, lacks elaboration. And the people, the, law, the, le- the, the lawyers, the teachers, they took this to their advantage. There were two schools of thought in this period of time. There was a school called the School of Hillel. They were more of the, the liberal sector of Jewish teaching. And they took this statement that says, finds no favor because he has found some uncleanness in her. And they took that as anything that you don't like. They had interpreted uncleanness as whatever you just don't like about her. That is reason enough to divorce. Unclean, the word uncleanness was not treated with any specific form of uncleanness. And the school of Hillel treated the word so broadly that men under this school were fighting to divorce their wives simply because they didn't like the way they cooked. Or perhaps they spoke disrespectfully of the husband's parents. Or because that sometimes it happened because the husband saw his wife speaking to, speaking to a man in the marketplace. And he didn't like that. And sometimes it happened because the husband saw another woman who looked more beautiful, which caused him to despise his wife. So, now, he found some form of uncleanness in her. I found a more beautiful woman. My wife doesn't have that beauty, so I'm going to divorce her, according to the school of Hillel's rendering of this term. There was also a school of thought called the school of Shammai, which held that indecency or uncleanness, more specifically, referred to a form of sexual misconduct, such as indecent exposure or excessive flirtation but did not typically refer to adultery. Because, think about it, why wouldn't they want it to refer to adultery, but other forms of sexual misconduct as a reason for divorce? We talked about last week how Leviticus 20 verse 10 prescribed a particular punishment for adultery. Do you remember what that was? Stoning to death. So, uh, if somebody's spouse was caught in adultery, there was no need to divorce them because they were to be killed. So the school of Shammai referred to this indecency or uncleanness as evidence of some sort of sexual misconduct or um, the like, but did not 
allow divorce for just any reason. Had to be some sort of sexual misconduct. And in our day and age, in the United States of America, we can really divorce a spouse for any reason whatsoever. Um, some of you um, who are history buffs remember that in the United States Declaration of Independence, there are given to humanity three unalienable rights. Can somebody list those just off the top of their head? What are the unalienable rights given to man by his creator according to the United States Declaration of Independence? Do you remember? Yes. Life, the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to the pursuit of happiness. Now, in today's society, happiness is often interpreted as simply elation, comfort, enjoyment, simple enjoyment. And people want this to prove that the government is responsible for my happiness, for my enjoyment of life. The government is responsible to give me bread and circuses, entertainment, food. That's what their job is, to make sure that I'm happy. But in that day, that's not what the writers of the United States Declaration of Independence were referring to. They included this in reference to the access to a thriving life, the right to pursue a life that you want to make for yourself, whereas we want the government to make the life for us that we want. In, fact, in, in more detail, the Declaration was written in response to the ill treatment that the writers saw in the English government and the dangers of abusive governments around the world. It was supposed to limit government, not place more responsibility onto the government. And this declaration of the right of happiness being foundational to our humanity was to prevent the government becoming so strong that it could suppress the U.S. citizens from making a fruitful life for themselves through excessive taxation or the redistribution of earnings. That's really what, from what I've studied, what the writers had in mind for this pursuit of happiness. But we see this, many in our culture, in our society, see this word happiness and determine that that means whatever we want it to mean. And that's the same as how people treat God's views on divorce. This word uncleanness. Interpreted however you want it to be. Because I want what I want. I want my way. So I will simply interpret something that's broad in such a way to fit what I want it to say. And this is not the only subject where we do this with. I mean, there's all throughout Scripture, people abuse the Scriptures, reinterpreting and reinterpreting, reinterpretations of reinterpretations to somehow get to where we want it to fit with what we want it to fit with. And that is not like we began this message the heart of a child for whom the kingdom is reserved. The childlike faith that says, you know what? God said this, so I'm going to believe this. What God said, I'm not going to try to make it say what I want it to say. The kingdom of God is reserved for those who come to the scriptures and say, God said that. I'm going to believe it then. So, what are we to do here? 
Okay, let me read this again. Matthew 5, 31 to 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So that's what they were being taught. They weren't being taught the whole law. He's saying, whoever divorces his wife. He doesn't say for what reason. He just says, if you want to divorce your wife, make sure you just give her a piece of paper that says so. <laughs> that's what the people were being taught. That was the popular thought. But, in verse 32, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality, the word for there is not adultery. The word there is simply fornication, some sort of sexual misconduct that is sinful, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, there are a couple of dilemmas that we see in this teaching. So if you divorce your wife for any reason except for sexual, for, for adultery, or for, except for sexual immorality, you're causing your spouse to commit adultery. Now, this is kind of a dilemma in our minds because, wait, adultery, let's define our terms. Fornication is simply any sort of sexual misconduct that's not adultery. Adultery is sexual misconduct from a married person with another married person. It's very specific. Fornication is very broad. And both of these are in this verse here. So, Jesus, it appears here, is giving us the right to divorce our spouse for, the, for sexual immorality. And he's saying, if you do it for any other reason besides that, you are causing your wife to commit adultery. Now, in our minds, when we divorce a spouse, now we're single. <clears throat> I'm single, my spouse is single. So in our minds, it just makes sense. We're single, now we can remarry. But if that were the case, how would Christ be regarding this as adultery? Because remember, adultery is simply be is between married people, not single people. Now, if somebody is sexually immoral within a, relation, within a married relationship, they are breaking your covenant vows. If they go and run off with their secretary or whatnot, they're breaking the vows of your marriage. That unity is corrupted by their sexual misconduct. Not to mention... These people typically got a very harsh punishment. But if we divorce somebody for any reason other than that, we cause them to commit adultery, and whoever marries them commits adultery. You only do that if they're married. Not right, so in this we can, we can see that our forms of divorce, for any such reason whatsoever, for a bad cook, unattractive, you know, blah, 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 in God's eyes, that marriage, that union that God established still remains. Even though the law says you're divorced. Even though you have a certificate that says you're divorced. Otherwise, he would not say that you're causing her to commit adultery. Because adultery only happens when you're married. It does not happen. Adultery is not the case when you're not married. When you're single, you can't commit adultery. You can commit fornication, but you cannot commit adultery when you're single. But at this point, 
we have to look at another passage. Look at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. Or 1 through 12, I'm sorry. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. In this passage, the Pharisees know that Jesus has a tendency to say some pretty radical things. And they are constantly trying to trip him up. To get him to say something radical that the mass population will disagree with. Especially the Roman government, because they want the Roman government to step in and condemn Jesus and put him to death. And he says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him and sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him and caught a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? So the Pharisees are trying to, to trap Jesus into, saying into repudiating the law, to denying the law, because they knew that Jesus was merciful. They'd never seen Jesus stone a person before. Jesus himself says, I don't come here to condemn, but to save. So they're trying to work him against his beliefs. And this they said in verse 6, testing him so they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, depressing him, come on, Jesus, give us an answer. We want to hear what you have to say about this. He raised himself up, and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So at first we see Jesus ignoring them. He knows that they're being ridiculous. He knows that what they're doing from the depravity of their own heart. They will see a woman killed just to get Jesus trapped. Depravity of these religious leaders. So he just, he kneels down and he just starts fiddling in the sand. Trying to ignore these people. But they keep pressing. They keep pressing. They're not leaving until Jesus gives them something. So he gets up. He stands up and he says to them, he looks them in the eyes, and he says, in his divine wisdom, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He didn't deny the law. He didn't tell them, no, I'm changing the law now. She no longer deserves death. Because the law did say she deserved death. He didn't say that. By what he said, he was acknowledging the law. He said, okay, there's a provision for stoning this woman. I say to you, go ahead, those of you who have never sinned, anything worthy of punishment, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. I can't imagine what these Pharisees were thinking at that moment. He, they thought, for sure, we've got him. He's either going to replace the law, or this woman is going to die. Those were the two options in their mind. But Jesus... So wise, he both acknowledges the law and forgives the woman. This is not what they saw coming. 
And is that not exactly what he did when he died on the cross? He acknowledged the law, that, it, that sin deserves death, but yet forgave us for the sin that we deserve to die for. Here, he is carrying out the gospel in this situation. This woman, at this point, she could be divorced by her husband, but first and foremost, she deserved to die. She was caught in the very act. There was no getting out of this. And then in verse 9, he says, Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman was standing in her midst, in the midst. So the religious people were ashamed. They got defeated. And Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I want to keep reading into verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, You know, perhaps it's just the disciples around at this point. Those who were coming against him had left. And he said to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here, Jesus is giving full freedom to mercy, to run wild. Do you wonder, have you ever wondered in the Old Testament why stoning was prescribed as a form of execution? In fact, in the, it wasn't just stoning, it was the community was to come together and do the stoning. It wasn't an executioner per se. The entire community became the executioners when a stoning was to happen. Do you ever wonder why that was? Why don't you just have an executioner with an axe? One person, not the whole community. The community was supposed to see the bitterness of sin in the stoning process. They were supposed to see the bitterness of sin. Execution was not just supposed to be a form of justice. It was supposed to humble the people as they're participating in this. This was not supposed to be something they got excited about. This was supposed to be a humbling time. As you know, Remember, these, these societies were close-knit. Some societies were hardly bigger than the people in this room. And when you came together as a community to stone somebody, you knew that person. You rubbed shoulders with them on a daily basis. You worked with them. And in fact, parents were supposed to stone their children if they were unruly. That's in the law, too. And I wonder if the purpose of all of this was so that the people could see exactly what Jesus said. If you're without sin, go ahead and throw that stone. We're supposed to see that this person is not the only one who's worthy of punishment. I am too. And how many of us who have a child could pick up a stone and throw it at our kid until they're dead? Throw it at a, a community member until they're dead. 
And Jesus here in this passage, he is not repudiating the law. He is not killing the law. Rather, he is unleashing the mercy that was always inside of the law. He is unleashing it. Letting this mercy run around boundless. Like a wild animal set free from a cage. He's finally breaking open the Old Testament justice system. Transforming it like a butterfly from an ugly caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. She deserved condemnation. But Jesus says, the writer of the Old Testament law, neither do I condemn you. He's the one who wrote about the condemnation in the Old Testament. Now here he is saying, I don't condemn you. I forgive you. I'll go and sin no more. And the judgment is this. Whom the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And in our bad relationships, we want to be free from that abusive spouse, that spouse who just will not talk to us, who's always against us, sinning against us. So what then about divorce? There is much that we can discuss today. Our time is already running out. We've barely touched this. And I can only deal with the subject in part today. We must see the heartbeat of God in this, if nothing else. In Matthew chapter 19, look here. Verses 3 through 12, Matthew 19. And we must, if you want to look at the end of verse 18, where this begins, is right after Jesus gives an intense sermon on radical forgiveness. And starting in chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So here, he elaborates a little bit more to the same question. Can't we just divorce, divorce our wife for any reason? And Jesus, he rebukes them. Haven't you read? I mean, the religious leaders, they obviously knew Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? So we start with the foundations. God created us male and female. He made us the way we are for a reason. And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. No provision is made for leaving his wife and being joined to his father and mother. No, he leaves what is behind and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And we talked last week about how this union is Trinitarian in its nature. How We're obviously two separate people. My wife is sitting way in the back row like a nice back row Christian. <laughs> and I'm way up here. We're obviously not joined at the hip. What in the world? How can we be one flesh but two flesh? How can God be three in one? It's Trinitarian in its nature. And he's saying, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. We don't have the right to separate that which the Lord has bound. That's not our job. 
That's why it wasn't in the first rendition of the law in Exodus and Leviticus. It came about in Deuteronomy. And the reason it came about in Deuteronomy is found in Malachi chapter 2. And you can hang on here for a second. I'll read it. And he says, And this second thing you do, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard your offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? Again, coming back to, you have become joined in a similar nature as God is joined as three in one. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. And let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, so that you do not deal treacherously. And in Matthew chapter 19, he is going back to the very beginning of the institution of marriage. So then, verse 6, they are no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. It was, it was never the will of God for divorce to be a thing. It wasn't even supposed to be a thing. But because of the treachery with which spouses were treating each other, God allowed Moses to make provision for it. And in verse 7, the people ask the question in Matthew 19, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? If it wasn't ever supposed to be a thing, well then why did Moses make allowment for it? Jesus says, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another... So now it's not just the wife, it's you, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced also commits adultery. And this is so outside of the scope of this society's thinking that the disciples themselves, the ones who are following Jesus closely, in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not even to marry. Unbelievable! Unbelievable! It was almost an expectation that at some point you're going to get divorced. Sounds familiar, right? You have a, in today's society, statistically, you have a 50-50 chance of your marriage making it all the way till death. Do you part? The disciples themselves were saying, Jesus, this is hard. In that case, if, there's no, if there should not be a real provision for divorce, and if, if you do divorce and then all of a sudden we're all committing adultery... It's better to just not get married in the first place so we don't have to deal with this divorce situation. And Jesus says something very, very interesting in response to this. And he doesn't, it doesn't actually sound like it deals with divorce. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Again, who might these people be? And again, this is why I started this off with the story of Tucker. Those who have the humble heart of a child, who simply accept what God says for what he says, can understand this. 
Those who do not accept God for who he is and what he has said will not be able to receive this. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs. Okay, a eunuch is somebody who chooses not to get married. Sometimes they go to great lengths to ensure that, which we'll not dive into. But simply somebody who is so devoted to something, whether a king or whatever, that they themselves refuse to get married. For there are eunuchs who are born this way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And he just leaves it to that and says, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. He just leaves it at that. That's all he says about that in response to his disciples. He says, hey, okay, I understand. Some people divorce their wives in such a way that keeps them from remarrying. But accept this. If that's the case, don't despise God and his word. Receive it from the Lord. And receive it as a new commission for you. That you now get to devote yourself to the kingdom of God and his work. And this is, divorce does not ruin you. And many of us might feel like that. I am completely ruined because I have a divorce in my past. This sounds like an extra burden. But really we must see this as freedom. You're not just, it's not about freedom from a bad spouse. It's about freedom to do God's kingdom work. Perhaps you are in a situation. We're going to look at another situation briefly. Because I do believe there might be, you know, this is me talking, reasons why we can remarry after we have been divorced wrongly. There are right, you know, like he said, for sexual immorality, he provides provision for that. But here he's saying, if you have been divorced in such a way that it would be unlawful for you to get remarried, don't take that as a burden. Take that as freedom. That now... You are now all for Christ. You don't have to consider the burdens of family life. It's not burden in a bad way, but you know how it goes. When you have a spouse and you have children, things get busy just taking care of the household. Paul talks about that. He says, accept it because it's God's word. Those of you who will accept it, accept it. But then everybody else will reject it. But we're running out of time, and I do want to deal with this last, these, this, this last passage. In fact, <clears throat> in Mark chapter 10, I'm not going to make you turn there, because this is, there's a few different passages we can talk about. Mark 10, and I talked to you about this kingdom of a child, is the same, same story as Matthew chapter 19. But instead of coming after a passage about forgiveness, immediately before Mark presents this situation where Jesus talks about divorce, he had just immediately talked about receiving the kingdom as a child. He follows that up with divorce. Right after this passage in Matthew, he's saying there's only some people who are going to be able to receive this. Not everybody's going to be able to receive this because this is hard to hear. And now we need to look at Luke 16. We have, two, we have two passages we're going to look at. Sorry for the delay, but we need to look at this because I want to at least get these things out. Luke chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. 
Well, let's start in verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since that time the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one little tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. What in the world? He wasn't even talking about adultery. <laughs> the, the Pharisees weren't even asking about adultery. But in order to represent how the law is still in effect, he's saying whoever divorces and marries another commits adultery. Whoever He's... he's Calling the Pharisees out. Remember the first thing he says, you are the ones who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. And then after this, he dives right into the story about the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man lived a great, comfortable life. He had everything he ever wanted, but but Lazarus had nothing that he ever wanted. But Lazarus is received by the Lord into his kingdom, and the rich man is not. We must not be those who seek out the life that we want for ourselves, regardless of what the Word of God says. 1 Corinthians 7, 10-16, this is the last passage we're going to look at. Unless the Spirit blows something into this room. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7, 10-16. This is Paul. All of this, up until this point, has been Jesus and Moses. But this is Paul now, reflecting on Jesus' teaching. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16. And 1 Corinthians is a book that's full of Q&A, essentially. It's a response to the Corinthian church. They sent him a letter filled with all their problems and their woes and questions. And 1 Corinthians is essentially a response to them. And he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16, Now to the married I command... Yet not I, but the Lord. Okay, so this is coming directly from the word of, words of Jesus Christ himself. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Depart, again, being in reference to that root word of apostasy or to fall away from, to divorce. Be divorced from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord... Now, that's the interesting word. That's the interesting phrase there. So now Paul, Counselor Paul, he he wasn't told this directly from Jesus Christ in some sort of meeting. Jesus didn't say it verbatim while he was alive, but this is something that Paul is gleaning from the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's what he means by this. He's not saying that this is not Scripture. He's just simply saying that this is something that Christ did not say verbatim, but I am deducing this from what he has said. So verse 12, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy." Of course, that reference is also that passage you read in Malachi, but that's another sermon. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. 
But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether he will save your wife? So to, to combine all of this, he's saying, you should not be the instigator of your divorce. Okay? In this situation, you have, perhaps, you have a person who perhaps maybe you were married to your spouse, you weren't believers, but then you came to Christ. And we've already established in other teachings of Christ that light cannot dwell with darkness. They cannot be one. That's why an unbeliever is not supposed to, or a believer is not supposed to intentionally marry an unbeliever. That is not the marriage that God puts together. That's not his desire. And he's saying, if you are married to an unbeliever and they divorce you, you are not under bondage. You are free. You can let them go. Do not be the instigator of such because there is still hope that you might bring them to Christ through your testimony. But if they want to leave, you're not under bondage to that marriage. And now, in these last couple minutes, I do want to kind of give a bullet point of what I have gleaned through these passages. We've said a lot of words. And just to summarize this, I believe that the priorities of God in Scripture about divorce are these. One, don't divorce. God hates it. It's so broken. But I also, but Scripture, Paul, Jesus, I, Moses, we also recognize people are corrupt. <laughs> people are corrupt. Everything's not perfect. The perfect marriage doesn't exist. Divorce will happen. If it were not allowed in the, in the book of Moses, then people would be constantly be dealing treacherously, abusing, hating, despising each other in these broken marriages, which can often lead to things that are even divorce, or even worse than divorce. So, therefore, Moses, because of the hardness of people's hearts, allowed for it. He allowed for it. Not because it's the desire of God. And that's why I say bullet point number one is don't divorce. That's not what God intended from the beginning, like Jesus said. But two, if you do end up being divorced, seek reconciliation and refrain from marriage. Seek reconciliation. Reconciliation is the heart of the gospel. Reconciling us to God, for we were once broken from him cast away from him because of sin. But God came after us with reconciliation in his heart. And we ought to do the same to those where we have brokenness, whether it's a marriage or any relationship. And in the meantime, as we're seeking, you know, if we're seeking reconciliation with that spouse, if we're truly seeking reconciliation, we shouldn't remarry. But if your spouse commits adultery and remarries, this again, this is me gleaning, you are no longer bound to them, but you are not to instigate it. As you're seeking restoration, you should not be the first person to remarry in that relationship. If your spouse that has divorced you remarries, then that remarriage is no longer possible. Recon true reconciliation is no longer possible because they have bound themselves to now another person. So to me, it seems in that situation, we're no longer bound by that. Though we should still forgive for past hurt and repent of perhaps hurt that we have caused. For if your spouse who is an unbeliever divorces you, 
who are a believer, you are not bound. You are not bound to them. Though you should still seek reconciliation, you should still pray for them, you should still repent of your sin, you should still pray for them to see the light of the gospel. Because reconciliation ought always be on our, on our hearts. Forgiveness, repentance, confession of sin. Perhaps your divorced spouse may be the hardest person to confess your sin to. So they're just going to throw it back in your face. But this is the heart of the believer, to seek reconciliation, to repent, to make right wrong. Wrong right, however you want to say that. Fifth bullet point, divorce for any other reason that is not specified is not sanctioned. Rather, if you end up being divorced in a situation where it was not, was not allowed, in, a, in the scriptures where it says you're no longer bound, well then you ought to remain unmarried. And it should be freedom for you to seek the Lord in His fullness, to live a full life promoting and pursuing the kingdom of God. This is, these are the things that I see in Scripture as I study them. You may not agree with some of this, because I, I don't know very many people who do agree with everybody about their views on divorce and remarriage. And I say to you, it's okay if you disagree with me. I've tried my very best to see what's in Scripture, to put it together, to try to give some bullet points of, of advice, some sort of conclusive evidence. And we can talk about this further. I know, like I said, there are many in this room that have been divorced. And if this is wearisome to you, if there's something that you think is completely absurd, I would be happy to sit down, we can talk together, and maybe you'll convince me. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, this was a hard message to prepare for. Very hard. But one thing we see here is that divorce grieves the Lord. Divorce grieves everybody who's ever been divorced. <laughs> or known somebody closely who's been divorced. It's a grievous thing. It was not supposed to be from the beginning. So therefore, this whole subject is complicated. It was not built into the DNA of, of relationships for divorce to ever be a thing. But it, but it became a thing because of our dysfunctionality as humans. And it just trickles down from generation to generation. And I, like I said at the beginning, I have compassion to anybody who has been divorced. I do not look down upon you. And like I had said before, you are not, you are not defeated because you've been divorced. Even, even unbiblically speaking and remarried and perhaps you regret, like, oh man, I look at Scripture, maybe I shouldn't have gotten remarried. You are not ruined because of perhaps any of these mistakes that perhaps you've made in the past. You are not ruined because you were divorced by somebody. You are not ruined. Rather, we see the redemption of God throughout this discussion in Scripture. How Jesus... This woman was actually caught in the very act of a very clear sin, adultery. But Jesus came to save, to set free. Not, not to despise the law, but to forgive those who are under its condemnation. To provide a way of salvation. A way of freedom from guilt and shame. And we must see the glory of the cross is that which frees us from the guilt and the shame of past, present, and future sins. Not, it does not provide a license to sin, but it does provide us freedom from it, from its dominion, from its crushing power. 
Jesus forgives and gives abundance of life to all of those who suffer from past sins. But we must look to Him. We must not look to social acceptance. We must not look to our lusts and our desires. We must look to God and where we must come into alignment with Him. Where He has called us to repentance, we must repent. Where He has called us to life, we must live. Not make excuses. Not justify ourselves, but stand under the the fullness of justification that Christ provided on the cross. You don't need to justify yourself. Jesus justifies you. You're not condemned. Stop trying to justify yourself. Jesus already did that. You don't need to do it. And you might find yourself in an irreparable situation. Marital problems often find ourselves in those ways. We may not be able to fix our past, but we can rest in the freedom of Christ for the rest of our lives. We're not called to make everything wrong that was right per se, because there are some wrongs that we can't reverse. So what do you do about that? You rest in the justification of Jesus Christ. You repent, you confess, you forgive, you try to reconcile as much as you can, knowing that it takes two to reconcile truly but you move forward in the love of God, knowing that his hand of judgment is not upon you in Christ Jesus. He is for you and he will make your paths straight, but you must walk in his paths because those are the ones that will be straight. Your paths are often crooked when you seek them apart from God, but his paths are straight. His burden is light. He has released you from the burden of sin, so follow him in his way according to his beautiful gospel of forgiveness, reconciling us to God. Lord, give us grace that we may process these things in humility, that we may not come against you, but we may receive you to to kneel before you in humble reverence, humbly repenting where it is necessary, humbly accepting the road that you have laid forth for us, that we might walk in it, We rejoice in your forgiveness. We rejoice in your salvation, given freely and fully, exploding unto everlasting life in Jesus Christ. May we strive that we might lay hold of that life that you have given us, to reject that which is behind, both the sins that Condemn us, the sins that try to weigh us down. May we reject those things in the name of Christ. As Michael rebuked Satan, in the name of the Lord, not in the name of my own strength. Lord, we rebuke sin in the name of Christ, that it may hold us down no longer, so that we may be free to go forward in strength, in the strength of Jesus Christ, in humility. Thank you for loving us and making a way, cutting through the complexity of all of our depravities as as a human race. You and your utter wisdom have confounded us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen.